So before we finally put an end to the last series that I did a while ago, I decided to go ahead and just, you know, beat a dead horse. Alright, we're just gonna make sure we cover, like, everything and, you know, put this topic to bed. You know what I mean? I did have some last thoughts on the gospel and just why it should positively affect us into a point of motion. Jesus has died, and that was the payment for our sins, so now we can get to heaven, right? Yes and no, not quite. There's a lot of theories that talk about Jesus' death and how that impacts our salvation, uh, but an important point to keep in mind is that it's not just Jesus' death that paves the way for our redemption, including his life, it also includes his resurrection, the fact he was brought back from the dead, and that means that death is dead, death is defeated, and in its place, Christ has been ascended and now takes the point of a throne, he is the point of our king. As I'm reading the book Surprised by Hope, N.T. Wright likes to hit on this a lot, and a while I would agree with him in some things, of course there's others I disagree with, but one thing that I do really treasure that N.T. Wright says is that we have... The modern church has almost no consequence when it comes to Christ on the cross in mind. Now, now, I'm not saying that it has no consequence because Christ is on the cross. What I'm saying is that we don't really pay attention to Christ on the cross, which is kind of ironic in a bad way. We like to say that Christ is our king, but now that he's on the cross, we still act like he's still in the grave. Christ's resurrection and ascension onto the cross has a very heavy role to play, predominantly that death is dead and we now have a new ruler. Paul spends a lot of time in the book of Romans trying to get an image like this across, including bringing up the idea of a marriage. Our death in with Christ results in our marriage with death being nullified and thus, and with sin thus being nullified and thus we can now be married in a new relationship with Christ. So there's all this imagery of the fact that that era is gone and past. It is no longer with us, and we are now in a new era. We are now in a new stage. So this resurrection has this idea that Christ's resurrection has a lasting, changing, modern effect that we I feel like we don't really take advantage of. Uh, Revelations 1, 5 and Colossians 1, 15 both also have something to say about this. It refers to Christ as the firstborn of all creation. What's interesting about that is it's a promise. The firstborn of all creation phrase a lot of times gets Christians kind of in trouble because of a misconception on what firstborn means. Uh, firstborn point blank in English means the first one born. However, in the scriptures, there's multiple accounts actually of how being firstborn doesn't actually make you the one to receive the blessing of the firstborn. Joseph's kids who were adopted by Jacob and became a member of the 12 tribes of Israel. I want to say it's Manasseh and... Judah? I want to say those are two. Anyway, the two kids of Joseph actually ended up having the roles swapped. The firstborn of the two actually ended up becoming uh, the lesserborn, and the younger one became the firstborn. So it's not only possible to see situations where the firstborn was actually not blessed with the blessing of the firstborn, but there was more than once where the results were swapped. That's the same thing that happened with Jacob and Esau. And it's also when Abraham took on his oldest servant and declared him the, sir, uh, the firstborn whenever he was looking at God and saying, you said I would have a child, but now I have to leave everything to my firstborn. But he has no kids. What he's talking about is his servant, his head servant, who's going to get the blessing of being the firstborn of his, inheriting his wealth. This whole idea of firstborn has a lot less to do with actually being made 
which is a lot of times what people try and make this passage say, has a lot more to do with the fact that he is the one that goes before us. Christ is the one that goes before us and has gone through what we will one day go through, having been killed, buried, and then resurrected, we will do the same. I think we miss the importance of this because it's easy to like hear that and get some chills about, ooh, there's a promise and we can hold on to that promise. That's not a promise. That's not a promise. If it was a promise, he would have given us maybe an analogy. But we have to realize the importance. It is active currently. It is not something that will happen later. It is what's going on right now. If Christ hadn't been been resurrected, we couldn't have said that. But he has been resurrected. He is the firstborn of all creation. This is not a promise of the future, but is what is going on now. This is why James 1.27 says something as radical as this is the essence of true religion to take care of the poor and the hurting and not be tainted by the ways of this world. The, the reason that these passages are so impactful and so important, and this is why Christianity is so radically different from most religions, is that the consequence that all the other religions are working towards, the Christians say, are happening, happening now. This is why we take care of the orphans. This is why we take care of the widows. These people who have said, I've given up religion for a relationship with Christ, still live in a mindset where we're not resurrected yet. But the truth of the matter is that Christ has resurrected, so death has actively been defeated. So we now live in an era where death is no more. We can leave it behind and religion can be perfect. When I say that, what I mean is that all religion is crying on the inside. I love the way the scriptures say it's labor pains. It is paining towards a result. It is pain pushing towards wanting to see something better. It is actively pushing in pain towards wanting to see a goal. And this is what religion is. Religion is the consequence of a world built out of a desire and a need for something it doesn't have. So religion itself is not something to be hated. It is just something that is imperfectly trying to take care of something that needs a perfect remedy. So when you start seeing people that are like, oh, I left behind religion, don't leave behind religion. Religion is important. Religion is important because it is a consequence that interconnects you. It is, religion is a interconnecting result of your relationship with Christ. If you are in a true religion, if you are in a correct religion, this religion will have consequences of how you interact with others. Again, James 1.27, if death has been defeated, you are redeemed and your relationships between others is being built and reconnected and reconstructed in the image of God. You will take care of the orphans and the widows because you see them differently because religion is how two people worshiping the same God interact with each other. In fact, it's not even that. It is how one person worshiping one God interacts with the beings that God has made and deemed valuable. This is a radical step. And this is what calls for the past two podcasts. Because death has currently been defeated. Because Christ now actively reigns on the throne. And yes, he's in your heart. But he is on a throne. He is ruling. He is king. And he is Lord. I was talking with a gentleman earlier and he had an issue with this phraseology, even though it comes directly from scripture, because Christ is also a friend. He calls us friend. And that's one of the things that Hebrews tries to describe. And you really miss it unless like you're a Jew or you've studied Hebrews, um, had the blessing of being able to study Hebrews under people who 
know Jews or know the Jewish belief. And I'm, I am I qualify as somebody who's ble- been blessed by other people's works. Uh, but the thing is that in, in, in scripture, you see the role of Christ in three different ways. First, he is a king. He is a king that rules, but he is also a prophet. What this means is he is the one who stands between humanity and God and represents humanity to God. That's specifically what a priest does. It's not the other way around. We seem to have built a misconception on that. A priest does not tell people what God is saying, but instead a priest comes up and stands as one a representative of humanity to the God, which means if the God is not happy with the people, the priests are the first to go. What's more, the priest also is going to reflect God to others. Yes, and this is why Eli was so heavily punished when his two sons were so radically against the demands of Christ uh, when Saul came onto the scene in First Solomon, First uh, Samuel. Ooh, ow, sorry, Samuel. In First Samuel, when Samuel came onto the scene. Words, guys, I'm going to work on it. Anyway, so you see that Christ now stands in between us and God, which is ironic because he's also God as the son of God and a member of the Trinity. And then he has one other area. He stands as a prophet. In other words, he represents God to us. He brings the word of God to us. So in this area, what, what a Jew would see, and, and prophets weren't these people that were far away. Prophets were typically poor. Uh, top prophets were typically people who, you know, knew other people. They weren't separated special parts of an unspoken of group. That's the, that's how the pagans did it. But in the Old Testament, God's prophets were with the people, were taking care of the people. And the miracles were for the poor. The miracles were for the oppressed. The condemnation were for the people who should have known better. And this is a lot of what you see. Now, granted, that's not all who the condemnation was for. I'm making a very general sweeping uh, stereotype. So, there are exceptions to this rule, and of course, I have a large margin where I'm wrong. But the point is that a prophet, and, and this is the point that I, if this was defeated, then what I'd be saying means nothing. I could be wrong about the other details, but this is it, that the prophets were personal. Prophets were personal interactions with other people. Granted, at times, they were far away. I think it was Samuel who had a college of prophets, and he, of course, was a prophet to the kings. So was um, Nathaniel when he condemned Daniel, but also when you see Elijah, Elisha, Ezekiel, and so forth, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, these people were interconnected with their community. Um, Jeremiah was literally dragged away by friends to Israel when, uh, to Egypt when Israel was going down in flames. And that's where the book of Lamentations starts coming into play, according to some estimates. Anyway, not the time. Focus, Nathan. The point is that it's personal, and that's the relationship you start seeing in Hebrews, that, that, that Christ is a personal king. He is a personal, intimate king. When we hear king, we think of somebody who you will never see, talk to, will never know your name. But when Christ is king, he knows you personally. He knows you intimately. And since death is defeated, this is a king that knows you personally and gives you life. So it's really good stuff. But if we act like Christ as a firstborn is nothing more than a promise, then, oh, death, where is your sting is a joke. We can't make it far away. We keep trying to separate it. Something to keep in mind is that even though they say that Christians would say things like, oh, death, where is your sting? I think it's important to say that they knew that death was still there. The scriptures, when it talks about death, it's not talking about an absence from the body. That's something that the Greeks did. 
what the Jews would have been focusing on would have been the death that came about whenever Eve ate the fruit. She didn't die immediately, but they were automatically cast off from their God. See, death isn't simply being absent from the body. It's being absent from your purpose. It's being absent for your purpose of being made and created and existing. The thing that you need more than breath is taken away from you. That is death. So when you look at being deceased from your body, it means nothing compared to being connected to the purpose that you were made for. So, oh, death, where's your sting? By being taken from the body, I am present with the Lord. The very thing you threaten me with is the very thing I get when you go through with your threat. Because for humans, since we can't see past death, we see death as it. It is the ultimate takeaway. It is ultimately have everything taken from us. But we know that because of Christ's resurrection, death is actively defeated. And because of that, there is no promise that we, when we die, we'll go to heaven. It is a, not just a certainty, it is an activeness. It's like being told that one day you have economic prosperity. That's a promise. No, we're in the middle of the economic prosperity. That is an action. Those are two different things. And so I'm not saying that we were promised versus we have right now. What I'm trying to do is give an example. That is the experience that you're getting with death. So when you die, you know for a fact you're going to certainly get joy because you get joy now because death has been defeated now and you live that now. Maybe you're depressed. Maybe you're defeated. And you look around and you say, well, Nathan, there's a lot of death everywhere anyway. The Christians said this at a time that was very similar. The early Christians, the first Christians would have said this at the time that was very similar. Take, for example, 70 AD. I was reading the works of Josephus about 70 AD. Uh, 70 AD was when the temple was destroyed and Israel was ransacked. Everything was burned to the ground and a pig was sacrificed on the the sacrificial ark temple thing. Mm. For those who don't know, pigs are considered dirty and unclean. As I stated earlier, dirtier and uh, dirty and unclean was less about, ooh, go take a bath and more about you're, you're flawed inherently and I should have nothing to do with you. And so as we're looking at all this, the Christians are watching what used to be the image of heaven, their promised of Christ, come down to the ground. As I was reading the works of Josephus, it was kind of funny because <laughs> Josephus was like, somehow the Christians knew to run and hide when they saw these signs. The Jews didn't, so they stayed behind and were massacred. So the Christians were out of the temple, by, uh, out of the capital by the time that Jerusalem fell. The reason that I thought it was funny was because if you read the gospel, there's literally a passage where Jesus says, when you see these things, the desolation of abomination, run for the hills. That was not an end times promise. That was a promise of the temple being destroyed, which is also a good point for how young the gospel is because the authors would have known and they would have uh, pointed out oh that he was talking about the jews at this time but because the scriptures were so young 70 a.d hadn't happened anyway this is not the time for apologetics that probably made no sense i'll probably edit it out i'll probably keep it because that's just the person i am anyway the temple was destroyed at 70 a.d the christians knew to run because christ had given them a warning when you see these events run for the hills and they had seen the events so they ran for the hills but they saw the temple destroyed. They saw their people because the, 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 the Christians at this time probably were Jews who would have been witnessing this. They saw their people desecrated, shattered. Every promise they were ever told about death being defeated would have seemed bleak. It would have seemed like a joke. The whole entire world would have been looking and all the Christians would have been looking. At this time, Christians today are kind of foolish enough to pretend like the Jews have nothing to do with them. But at that time, every Christian would have been well aware that the Jews had a heavy influence on their Christian faith. So to lose Jerusalem is heartbreaking. It's heart-wrenching. 
But just like the fig tree that Christ went to go look at and see if it had produced fruit, and he saw nothing, and he condemned it to die, he came and he had spent time in Jerusalem looking to see if it was producing fruit, and it was not. So it had to pass. The prophecy had come and gone, and the command has come and been finished on that end. Anyway, it still would have been a bleak image of how death still reigned, or it would have felt that way. What's more, something a little more to the Gentile Christians is Nero. The reason I say Gentile Christians is because Nero is the first emperor to kill Christians animately. And it's because it's also the first time Christians were a powerful enough force to be killed. Nero had the misfortune of living through the fire of Rome, which burned down like two or th- like a third, I think, actually, of Rome. Uh, whether, some people say he started it. Some people say he didn't. Some people said he was there and he was reciting some poetry as Rome burned. The others, other, other sources say that he was actually there fighting the fires. No matter what happened, Nero did a pretty bad move afterwards. He made himself a palace. Like, that was part of the reconstruction program. He also instigated fire zones and fire laws to help prevent the spread of fire. So if there was another fire, it wouldn't be as devastating. But he also built himself a pretty nice palace with a pretty big statue. That makes enemies. It didn't matter if he was there or not. Like <laughs> That makes enemies. That was not a good move politically. But Nero was all about the theatrics. So now he was under under blame. People were beginning to say things like, oh, Nero started the fire so he could build his stupid palace. And Nero was like, oh, I've got I've to find some. And he looks at the Christians, this new sect that's coming up in the middle of Rome, and he goes, they started the fire. Now, this is only centralized to Rome. This is not anywhere else. However, Nero would eventually end up killing Christians. And the accounts are brutal. Nero did some pretty nasty stuff to these Christians. Now, these, this is also the same emperor that would end up killing Paul and killing Peter. Historically speaking, there's not really any written evidence in scripture. It's just something that history has always kept in mind. As Christianity grew bigger, no one ever quite remembered the fact Nero was the one to kill two of the powerhouse apostles when it comes to scripture. Not that they were more important, all equally important, especially for the eyes of the Lord. However, still the two names that pretty much every Christian knows, Paul and Peter, Nero killed them. That's not a good thing to have on your rap sheet. So at this point, death, oh death, where's your sting, would have been harder and harder to say. And this was just a little bit of it. Eventually, a little while later, you would have emperors that would start whole entire empire-wide persecutions. And as this continues on, you would start seeing the mark of Christianity be less about peace and love and be more about missing ligaments and being willing to carry Christ's name beyond torture. They never once forgot, oh, death, where is your sting? That death has been defeated and I live in a new era. Because of this also, they would never give up the command found in James 1.27 that this is pure religion to take care of the orphans and the widows despite their persecution. Now today, we have a pandemic going around. Now today, a lot of Christians are being forced to take vaccines that they don't necessarily believe in. And I can understand that. I'm surrounded by that world. A lot of things you see on media are, just just go get your vaccine. All of my friends are fighting against it. (laughs) Not for any other reason than they feel like there's a wiser way to do it, and it was not done. I'll be the first one to tell you that I feel like the way we've treated this whole pandemic has been inappropriate has been a complete violation of boundaries on multiple levels. Am I vaccinated? Um, 
probably not a question I wanted to bring up, but yeah. Am I against vaccines? No. But am I way against the way that humans have been treated because of this? Yes, 100%. It has been completely inappropriate. Now, it may seem we are in the middle of an era of death where it doesn't feel like death has been defeated. But instead, death rules in the hearts of man and it rules in our bodies as we continue to die. But true, the truth is, this is mostly just a bunch of pop propaganda from the enemy because death has still been defeated. Even though there's a pandemic to maybe speed it up in some areas or maybe not, death, death's role in life has not changed. It remains defeated. Even though we may feel segregated and separated so that religions are no, no more, Maybe we may feel like society has been fighting off this concept of God. Nietzsche was the one who famously said Christ has killed him. We were the ones who murdered him. Rationality was our, our weapon and we've killed him. That's not an exact quote. Also because Nietzsche was German, but also because I don't have the quote in front of me. But something along those lines, I'm probably completely wrong, but he, he was the one who said that Christ, Christ uh, that God is dead. It may feel like death reigns in that area, but it's not true. Christ has defeated death. And he did so by dying and having the audacity to come back. That is powerful because that also means for us that even though we have died, we are coming back. This all connects directly to the imagery I gave earlier of the fruit. Because death is that brokenness, is that disease that goes into the tree so that the tree produces bad fruit. Paul said some really weird stuff in Romans. One was that the law was not bad. But by the law, I discovered so many ways for sin to take root. And through that, death. So sin is bad. The law is something that simply sin uses to create death. It's very fascinating. So I just recently bought one um, section of the Talmud. It's on the Sabbath. and Oh my word, I thought that this was going to be, um, I have some cultural references to it. It's almost exclusively a legal document, almost completely a legal document. I want to here soon go visit a, a tabernacle and ask Jews their opinions on certain things about their religion and so forth, really just figure out more about what modern Jews believe and so forth. And step one to that for me was buying a Talmud and actually looking into it and my gosh, my, my guy, oh my goodness. So the Talmud is a written down document of a bunch of what was called Mishnah, Mishnah, Mishnah Yaha, or Mishnah is what they're often referred to. And Mishnah are oral commands and sayings that Jews would pass down from one to another concerning how one Jew is supposed to act. Uh, one good way I heard it referenced um, by one Reverend Smith is, um, one uh, pastor smith is that imagine that you had a lake and you were scared people were going to drown in it this is the law and this is what the jews thought when they exited exile they said the only reason we were exiled was because we broke the law so we're never going to get close to breaking the law again so you have this lake you're scared people are going to drown in so what you do is you build a gate but then you think to yourself well people can jump a gate so what you do instead is you go back of another uh, 20 yards and then you build a wall twice as high as that gate. And you go, well, some youngsters can still try and get over this. So you go back another 20 yards and you build an electric fence. That is where the mission is start coming in. 
well, we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So what does it mean to work? Well, um, we let's say that it's um, moving a movable object. So like leftovers. Yes, 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 yes. Like leftovers. Okay. And when does the Sabbath technically start? Well, the sundown of the previous day. So after dusk on Friday is the Sabbath. Yes. Okay. And what does it mean to move leftovers? Because if I take food and take it from the table to the kitchen, is that a breaking of the law? Well, no. You see, we have to have certain boundaries in which we know that you are moving something. So if I were to take something from outside to inside or inside to outside, yes, that's, that's moving something. Okay, well, what about a, a doorpost? Is that outside or inside? We'll call it a middle ground. Okay, well, how big does a doorpost have to be to be a doorpost? Because you could also walk through an, an archway in the middle of a road and that could technically be middle ground. Well, you see, it has to be uh, 20 paces by eight paces, I think is what it said. Like, that's the, that's, that's the Mishnah and that's what's in the Talmud. And you're like reading this going like, oh my gosh. And this is what Paul is talking about. Well, not specifically this, but also this. These are the laws that the Jews had to keep. And by constantly trying to hold down these laws, you can actually find yourself walking into sin because sin is not a violation of law. It is instead a state of being that is brokenness. Whenever the Jews exited Babylon, they had told themselves we had broken enough rules that God couldn't stand it anymore. They never once thought about it being that God had seen so much depravity in his promised people that it had to be rectified. There's a difference there. You as the tree of Christ in his garden, he's concerned with your health so that good fruit may be produced. Because bad trees produce bad fruit, but good trees produce good fruit. And if you were to produce good fruit, you must be a good tree. These are the consequences of your brokenness that you will produce bad fruit. But Christ's healing and the defeating of the cross of death produces good fruit. So how do you produce good fruit? By the law? No, but the law does help you see what good fruit is. But it also helps you see what bad fruit is. And can push you into the bad fruit. Can push you into being an unhealthy tree. A good fruit naturally produces good... A good tree naturally produces good fruit. In other words, a Christian who has submitted himself to God and has been made to reflect not the ways of this world, as James 1.27 says, but lives a true religion that is submission to God, and the gardener makes the tree healthy. Christ makes the tree healthy because he has defeated sin, and death is defeated. You produce good fruit. That is the difference. Now, I probably just repeated everything I've said in the past two podcasts, but this is when I'm done. All right, I'm done here. But this is, this is something that we have to keep in mind, that death is currently defeated even if you're going to die one day. Because we have seen it be defeated before, we know it is defeated now. Not it will be defeated again, it has been defeated now. Because Christ is the firstborn of all creation. It was through him that all creation was made. And it is through him that we all walk past death into life. That's, first, that, that's also, that's Colossians. I hopefully won't do this again. Hopefully, we'll probably just come back to it later, like a few few months, maybe a year later. I don't know. See what happens. But that was the topic. That was it. We're done. Thank y'all guys so much for listening to this little 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 spurt. I felt like I was listening and it, and it hit me as an epiphany that I felt like I didn't talk about the resurrection enough and its permanent status today. 
even though we wait for a future hope, even though we wait for the Christ's return when he establishes the church, because he does, if we simply say that Christ still that Christ is somewhere else and death still reigns today, we we spit on the sacrifice and and we give up on James one twenty seven. We give up on the promises in Revelations one five. We give up on everything in Colossians one. You can't give up on it. Even though Christ will return one day and bring about his permanent kingdom here on earth, where physical death has no rule, we must remember that it is now that sin and death have been defeated. We can't live without that memory in our minds as we wait expectantly for Christ's return.